This show is about your mental health. While it's supported by the pillars of positivity and hope, if you find yourself in crisis, please reach out for help. In many communities in both the United States and Canada, you can dial 211 to be connected to mental health and crisis services in your region. While it may seem like it at times, you are not alone. There is no doubt there is a stigma when it comes to mental health, as many hiding their pain, not seeking treatment. Fortunately, though, we're chipping away at these old ideas, realizing conditions like depression should be treated, not hidden. However, we still have a very long way to go when we speak about addiction. In fact, just as I said that word, what was your first impression? Did you think about a, well, I'm just going to say it, did you picture a loser? Some middle-aged guy can't get his act together? A runaway hooked on crack? It's their own fault? Little chance they'll ever change? Well, the pandemic is forcing us to rethink how we think about addicts. Addiction, you are not alone right now on The Happy Molecule. This episode brought to you by City Parent, Canada's largest award-winning free regional parent magazine, serving families for 35 years. Go to cityparent.com, fill out a ballot, maybe win a Craftsman Toolkit valued at almost $500. I know I use the term you are not alone a lot when I talk about mental health, but I couldn't think of a better title for this episode, Addiction, You Are Not Alone. That's because... Reaching out to others is essential when it comes to recovery. Now, many people who find themselves dependent on some substance know how others probably regard them. So how can they have hope and seek help if they don't feel worth it? Later, I have a fascinating conversation with one woman who was able to take back control of her life and now helps others do the same thing. But first, isolation, loneliness, uncertainty, boredom have all created conditions ideal for addiction. But what is the line you cross from enjoying something and being addicted to something? Dr. Wiplov Lamba is a psychiatrist specializing in addiction at the Ontario Shore Center for Mental Health Sciences in Whitby, Ontario. Hi, Dr. Lamba. Hi there. Let's first of all talk about addiction and COVID. We had an addiction problem before COVID, However, the pandemic has made it worse, hasn't it? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I think it has. Um, I mean, I, I worked at St. Michael's Hospital for five or six years before coming to Ontario Shores. And there it's, it's like an inner city hospital. So you see people that are admitted for medical reasons, but it's complicated by their addiction. And there were a lot of overdoses, a lot of uh, substance use that was there um, as well. And so it already was a problem and it's been in the news for quite some time. Now with COVID, when COVID started, they closed a lot of the detoxes, they closed a lot of the uh, treatment programs. And while some of them have opened now, they're at limited capacity with very sort of rigid rules and so forth. And so I think partially because a lot of the treatment programs closed, I think also the isolation is really affecting people. Uh, I haven't seen the stats yet and I'm nervous for as the data starts to come out. I know in March and April when COVID started, there was a huge spike in overdoses, um, but I haven't seen the recent uh, data. How do we and, know we're an addict? Uh, you know, it, it, maybe a glass of wine, two glasses of wine, three, four. Uh, I hear all sorts of things if you're having two, more than two a day to a week. But how do you know when you're actually addicted to something? 
So that's a phenomenal question, right? And already what you're alluding to is that there's this culture behind it as well. So if you look at the low risk drinking guidelines in Canada, the numbers are actually a little bit lower than they are in the UK, right? When you look at that, like drop for drop, amount for amount. And, and I, think it's, I think it's something that um, when you get stuck in this whole addict versus non-addict thing, you sometimes don't get a space to really have this dialogue around what's important to you, what role our substance is playing. And there's a way just for general sort of improvement in some, uh, in some way. Um, a lot of people who work with people who use drugs try to stay away from the word addict, although I've worked with a lot of patients who uh, have been to AA and NA and really identify with that term. They really like that label. It really inspires them that, well, this is how I am and I can't be in that, uh, that environment. Whereas others find it really stigmatizing to be labeled that way when they go to the hospital for help, when they need pain medications, uh, those kinds of, uh, kinds of things. I personally like the four C's. So there's this four C's for addiction. So it's when you have cravings to use, uh, you're not able to cut down uh, when you're uh, trying to do it. You continue to use it despite uh, negative uh, consequences. And there's one other C that's slipping my mind right now. I can't remember <laughs> what it is, but I really like the four C's and the DSM has criteria as well. So that's the psychiatric manual that you could potentially go through those uh, as well. So for me, I really like to find out about people's substance use, um, regardless of what I'm seeing them for. I work as a psychiatrist. Uh, and then I really try to create a space for that dialogue around uh, what they like about it, uh, what it does for them, uh, the potential harms, and also move into what they can potentially replace it with. I do have to be careful because it's my own biases speaking a little bit as well, right? So immediately, you know, you see an addiction psychiatrist, I'm sort of moving you towards uh, using a less. And that's something I just have to sometimes uh, put in the back burner and really see where the person is and what's important to them and what they want. Isn't it true? It's the, the preconceived thoughts we have about addictions, about addicts, the stereotypes and the misinformation. Uh, and that can be the very first thing that, that hinders someone from getting help. I mean, it can be. I don't know the the stats and the data and the studies, the qualitative studies that really talk about what are the barriers towards uh, treatment. There definitely is some kind of a stigma. And when I think about what they've taught us about how the addiction treatment world evolved, it wasn't in the medical field, right? The medical field really saw it as something with personal responsibility, that this is something that you need to change. And most of the early treatments for addiction really were from the peer support, self-help uh, kind of world as well. And so it's a whole form of treatment that develops outside of the medical um, profession. That whole belief around personal responsibility and personal choice uh, is still sort of there in some way. Um, and while there's truth in that, that there needs to be some internal sort of motivation drive, there are things we can do to make in the environment to make somebody more likely to get help and on top of that, as healthcare providers, uh, there's things that we can offer directly uh, that can help a pers uh, person as well, more than just uh, telling them that it's uh, harmful and it could um, hurt them. What dangers are we running by saying to ourselves, uh, oh, you know what, when lockdown's over, I, I won't be using that uh, nearly as much, so that's okay? Yeah, I mean... 
it's that's an interesting question, right? Because because you're giving the, these statements that are absolutely true, but it's so hard for me to apply to a general population because because I know I know people who used to go it all the time. You know, maybe they worked in the business side of things, but it's really a dinner and social, and their amounts were through the roof, much more than the low risk uh, guidelines are. And then come lockdown, they're home and alone; they're not using at all. And then I know other people where uh, maybe they they weren't using that much, maybe just a weekend thing, but now that maybe they're not working, maybe they're at home at all is just taking up their full their full day and so i i find it hard to sort of speak about uh, sort of trends i know for a lot of people that i've worked with even when i talk to friends um i think around the fall got to be especially tough because a lot of us were expecting this to clear up a lot earlier get to be social see our grandparents see our parents uh those kinds of things and it really took a toll i think mood wise and probably substance use wise as well but i think i have to be a bit careful because i don't know the i don't know the stats mm-hmm. right and a lot of assumptions um, I, I think when it comes to anything to do with mental health, with addiction, I mean, with our, with our physiological health, um, the one thing that really is the greatest motivator is hope, knowing that there is hope. You have seen people at the beginning, the middle, and the end of, of their recoveries. What can you say that could bring hope to someone because it's it's going to be a long road it, it's work yeah so so it absolutely is a lot of work and and i still remember i think it was a second year psychiatry resident i was working with a shelly brook who's a psychiatrist at saint michael's hospital who's a very uh, good psychiatrist uh, there and uh, when i was a resident i saw someone with a depression and i thought i did a great assessment i had a great treatment plan all that stuff and afterwards she spoke to me and she's like whiplove when people come in you have to have them leave with hope and and i really i really believe that and so for me my assessments you take about 15 to 20 minutes longer than if i just did my assessment, had a note, and I told them the plan. I try to figure out what people's values are, what they care about, family, uh, work, career. I, I make sure I know what the harms of the substance is. And I also know what path they're willing to try. So I'll make sure I know, is this someone that's willing to consider medications? Would they be interested in a group? Do they need individual counseling? Is there a family member I can pull in as well? And, you know, I, I do sometimes say things indirectly. So for example, I could tell them, oh, this is going to help you. You're going to get better. I'll sometimes tell indirect stories because some people don't do well when you give them direct advice. And I might say that, you know, like um, I've seen a lot of people struggle with the stuff that you're going through. Uh, these are treatments that can definitely help. Uh, and and if you come back, we'll sort of, we'll go through this uh, together in some, uh, in some way. I mean, most people don't know that for alcohol, there are medications that can reduce cravings. There's medications that can help with the anxiety. Uh, and the withdrawal related to it. Uh, they don't know the ways you can involve family members in a way that's uh, productive and helpful as well. So, I don't know if there's an easy answer to this. Uh, why are we addicts? Uh, you know, what, it, I think the first time it feels good, right? And maybe the second and third time. But then it takes longer to get that, that feeling, that, that good feeling. And sometimes it doesn't even come and we regret it, we're guilty about it, we say never again, and yet we do it again. I, why? That's another another great question, you know, and we're going back to this whole nature versus nurture uh, argument. Uh, is this something where we're born a certain way or do we get exposed to certain things that make us more vulnerable? Is it more like this nature via nurture kind of thing? And when you talk to people who are really big in the, the addiction world or the substance use world, a lot of them link it back, like Gabor Maté, um, he'll link it back to trauma, he'll link it back to connection. 
And so uh, the way that I sort of understand it is that there are certain people that are vulnerable, right? So there are certain people when they have uh, that first uh, dose of morphine, uh, they get this euphoria, they get this peace, they get this calm. And there's other people when they have their first dose of morphine, they get nausea and they get sick. The same thing happens with alcohol. So some people when they have alcohol, they get excited, they get energized. Other people, it's a different experience. And we know there's certain experiences that make you more vulnerable to it. Um, if you have had adverse childhood experiences, if you have had uh, some kind of trauma, you are definitely going to be more vulnerable. And I, and a lot of people also point to those rat park experiments. So there's these rat park experiments where they have mice that grow up in this deprived environment where they're just in a cage, whereas other ones that grow up in these environments where they have other rats around and they also have toys, uh, spinning wheels, things like that. And the rats that grow up in the cage with almost nothing are much more likely to get um, addicted to heroin based on these animal models than the ones that have um, that real social connection, that have that enriched environment, uh, have that environment that they're engaging with and growing within. When we talk about uh, um, any treatments for uh, mental health issues, um, we talk a lot about being kind to yourself, about being gentle with yourself. But when it comes to addiction, there has to be some self-discipline and perhaps being tough with yourself as well. But at the same time, you still have to be kind to yourself. Can you help me sort of weigh that to, to sort of tell me where I should be? Absolutely. That's another great question. It's clear that you've thought about these things, right? <laughs> like, Because no, what you taught was actually very, very important. And so one of the therapies that I was trained in a lot was motivational interviewing. And motivational interviewing really involves meeting the person where they're at, figuring out what they want, and creating that space for dialogue. Um, and motivational interviewing was developed in Albuquerque, New Mexico by this guy, Bill Miller. And back then, that's when AA really had sort of that stronghold, right? Alcoholics Anonymous. And there are a lot of people that do benefit from AA. It's got rigid rules, rigid structure. These are the expectations. You know, you're a slave to that, that higher power, whatever it might be. But then there's certain people that don't really respond well to that. And that's where how do you create that safe space, that environment where they can talk? There's other therapies that I've also had training in where it's more of that balance, right? And so dialectical behavior therapy by Marsha Linehan, uh, it's more designed for personality uh, disorders, but it works for everybody. And it really involves both of those things. So how do you create that acceptance, support, and that compassion? But how do you create an environment where you can also call people on their crap away? Like, and I don't know how to say that in a gentle and nice way, but there's this gentle balance in some people, especially if they've had harshness, 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 they're going to need that support, that care, that compassion to sort of hook them in and build that trust. And then you can sometimes direct them. And then there's other people where maybe they need that, that, um, what is it? That velvet glove, that velvet iron glove. I, I'm horrible with metaphors. I have these loose sort of ideas. Velvet iron glove sounds great. But, but really, that's what it is. It's like, how do you have that balance between accepting and supporting someone for how they are and then creating an environment for that change? Because if you're entirely going to be accepting of something, there's a chance that you might be reinforcing that behavior. And if you're just promoting that change, the person may not realize that you see that they have value because you're saying you got to change, you got to change. And it's this delicate dance. I want to change. How do I start? Uh, I mean quitting cold turkey and then getting help? How do you start? 
Oh, that's a great question. And it's one of those things, the problem with when you get all this extra training, it's almost like you're so specific around that individual that you're seeing, you're so specific around that context. It's hard for me to zone out and sort of see that big picture and that broad approach. And also it's a very different thing if I'm the one sitting with someone coaching and guiding them through versus them on their own realizing how to make that um, make that change. I can throw out a couple of ideas. You know, I, I think it's important to have a little bit of self-reflection, knowing what you care about, knowing what's important to you, knowing what your values are when you're using and also when you're not. Uh, I think it serves really well when people have like a mentor or a guide, someone they can turn to around these things to sort of be there for them as they're trying to get out. Uh, I think it's also important to have some idea of what you're capable of and where you might need help and how you might need help. And unfortunately, uh, it's hard to find a place that you can just show up at their door and say, hey, I'm ready for help. Can you sort of work me through it? And, And that's where being in a state where you can approach these different agencies, see what's being offered there, and then try to find that right fit, I think is incredibly, um, incredibly uh, important. I, I just think, I think it is a little bit uh, complicated uh, because I think everyone is so unique. Some people have uh, complex trauma. Uh, some people may have other mental illnesses. Some people may be environmental, like maybe they're not working, maybe they don't have a job. Uh, maybe someone's going through a really rough patch. And, and it's, it's hard to come up with that broad approach. I do know that um, I can't predict what's going to inspire someone. Sometimes it's the simplest comments. Sometimes it's a movie. Sometimes it's a TV show. I, I don't know. And so I'm all for anything that creates that uh, that spark. Uh, and hopefully uh, people, if they're listening to this, trying to make a change, they have some way of reaching out and they have a willingness to reach out several times to several different places until they find what they're looking for. Where do you reach out? So... So I, I think uh, it would depend on what substance you're you're using in some kind of way. In Ontario, they have these rapid access addiction medicine clinics. Uh, they're mainly designed for alcohol and opiates, and they're mainly medication-based. Uh, AA has a bunch of websites, and one of the good things about COVID is there's tons of these virtual groups. And when I work with patients, I try to get them to go to five. You know, I try to get them to commit try about five and see if you can find one that's a good fit. And I'll even coach them before, right, on what to say, how to say it, say it in the beginning, and they can sit there for the rest of the time. There are things like smart recovery that can also uh, help uh, as well. It's a slightly different approach to AA, but they also have groups uh, that are there as well. And a lot of uh, places have things like the Canadian Mental Health Association, especially if there's comorbidities uh, and things like that. There are um, uh, pure substance use treatment streams uh, as well. There's a lot of different programs all over the uh, province. Uh, usually we have like some kind of a sheet that we hand people will sometimes coach them on which ones to try and what to expect when they when they reach out. I, I just think once you get in that mindset of trying to connect and you have enough support that you don't get discouraged when you don't get what you're looking for right away, I think that's where some of the magic starts to happen when you start to realize what you want, you know, and uh, start working through uh, the different options available. How many years have you worked on addiction uh, not very long. I mean, I think about 10 years. So I finished my residency in psychiatry in 2011. And then I did a year of fellowship in CAMH uh, for addiction psychiatry. I stayed there for a couple of years and I was at St. Mag's for five or six. And now I'm a part of the concurrent disorders program at Ontario Shore. So about 10 years uh, working in the uh, in the field and all three environments, it brings such a different type of... St- like if there was such a thing as the most common patient, they'd be completely different in the three uh, in the environments three that I've spent. Because yeah. St. Michael's Hospital is a is an inner city hospital. 
Yeah. Uh, Cam H, uh, it, it, it has a catchment basin that's huge and, and from everywhere. And Ontario Shores is a little bit further afield and quite new and quite modern as well. Yeah, and I mean, all the places are, are different. I mean, with, with Ontario Shores, they're very much uh, pathway-based based on diagnosis and having people go down uh, certain uh, certain streams. Uh, in a lot of these uh, places, uh, a lot of these hospitals and other organizations, uh, addiction is almost uh, siloed a little bit. So it's uh, still sort of that... Um, I don't know what the metaphor is, second cousin or something. I don't know what it is. Like, I mean, that's uh, what we, we find with mental health in general, that, yeah. that it's siloed. Yeah. And, and, and we're talking about one body, one brain, one person, and yet we're, you know, we, we're siloing, we're, we're dividing these things off as though they don't, they don't affect each other. So yeah. the reason I was asking how long you've been doing it, so do you ever hear from patients from years ago and, and how, are, how are their lives now? It, it's such an individual thing. And every, uh, every now and then I do run into somebody that I worked with before. I hear about stuff that they've done differently. Maybe the substances aren't a problem anymore. Maybe they have a family. Uh, maybe there's other things that are, that are going on in their life. I usually only hear about the planes that crash, right? So I don't yeah, always true. hear the stories that go, um, that go well. But whenever I do, I, I spend a lot of time uh, listening. I, I love hearing about how people did it, uh, what they were able to do uh, to, to get there. Because um, it's one of the things that when they start talking about it, it's almost like they're telling themselves, reminding themselves of all those uh, really difficult steps that they've already worked through and gotten through. Um, you do see people get better. And in fact, you know, um, when I started working in this field, uh, there were certain patients I saw where I couldn't imagine uh, them getting their trauma treatment. And uh, having spent uh, this time in the field, I've seen people where they can get over a fentanyl um, addiction. Uh, uh, I've seen them uh, come on good medications. I've seen them get uh, screened for their mental health comorbidities. And I've seen them go through PTSD treatment as well. And uh, it's really quite uh, remarkable uh, to see. And uh, I feel like that wave is coming, you know, that wave is coming to have all these pathways for these complex uh, patients. And I'm really excited to see how it, um, how it plays out. Uh, it, it is uh, just to wrap things up here. Um, you know, this of course is a time of loneliness. It is a yeah. time of isolation. There are a lot of people who are alone out there. And so they may not have someone who is there for them and sort of really encouraging them to get treatment. Um what can you say to someone who is by themselves right now, who know that they need to seek help? What kind of words of encouragement can we give to them? I mean, that's such a great question. And, and I wish I almost prepared for that because <laughs> this is what I struggle with on a regular basis. You know, people are isolated. People are scared uh, of the uh, of the virus. Um, some of these people had limited connections beforehand uh, and as well. And, and I find myself uh, recommending options that aren't at that ideal level, you know, whether it's, oh, maybe sign up for, for this group. I mean, a lot of places are offering online kind of groups and counseling, but the wait lists are quite, um, mm -hmm. quite long. I think at the end of the day, you know, I mean, we're all human beings, human beings have a way of surviving, of connecting, adapting uh, to different, uh, different situations. Uh, and my hope is that uh, with this um, wave of whatever is happening, uh, 
some people find ways to be more more connected. I can't speak for some of the people that are struggling the most because they may not have, uh, you know, internet access. They may not have videos. They may not have a place to sort of stay. I have seen examples where, you know, someone who's 65 or 70, they, they learn how to use a computer. They learn how to set up these video appointments. They, they like one person I think is creating these meetups, you know, where uh, her and a bunch of friends are meeting on on Zoom and, and discussing different books and things like that. So I think there is, there is hope for that adaptation piece the loneliness is very very tough and i don't know what gives each individual meaning you know some people it's spiritual some people it's religion some people it's connection whatever it might be and i would encourage people to really find ways to reach out to have that um because uh whatever they're dealing with they're definitely not the only ones dealing dealing with it at this point so so perhaps we could expand uh, when we say uh you are not alone and and say you are not alone don't stay alone Right. Actually, yeah, no, that's, I like that. I like that a lot, actually. Uh, and um, no, that would absolutely be be great, you know, uh, if people are able to make that efforts to, to reach out um, to other things. And I think there are going to be some creative kinds of social stuff that'll come out as time, um, as time goes on. All right, Dr. Lamba, thank you so much for this time. Okay, thank you. For more information on getting help, go to my website, thehappymolecule.com slash links. In a moment, she only found out she was an addict long after everyone else around her already knew. Today, she is not only back in control, but helping others take control by moving. City Parent is Canada's largest award-winning free regional parenting magazine serving families for 35 years. We've recently redesigned our website, cityparent.com, to bring you a new look and feel, along with the latest for babies, education, childcare, camps, family fun, and entertainment. You'll enjoy our wide range of information and advice on products, our book reviews, local event listings, recipes, and health features. Pick up your free copy at convenient pickup locations across the GTA, or visit cityparent.com to read digital editions and more. Enter our Sign Up to Win contest for a chance to win a Craftsman Toolkit valued at $449.99. For all things for your family, click to cityparent.com today. No one can accuse Millie Day of being quiet and demure. It's no wonder that she is now training to be a dance therapist to help others recover from addictions. To her, the answer to her own addictions was to take action, literally. She speaks with me from her home a few hours north of London. Hello, Millie. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about your story to begin with. You are an addict. Yeah, I mean, I... And, I don't, and I'm sorry, I don't want to say that in an accusatory kind of way, but it's more a factual thing that, that all addicts have to come to grips with. Yeah, true. It's actually quite interesting. I've never had that experience before when someone said to me, you are an addict. And that, it was interesting what just happened in my body there because I'm so used to saying it. You know, I've said many a time, hi, my name's Millie, I'm an addict. Or hi, my name's Millie, I'm an alcoholic. And that is the first time anyone's actually directly said it to me. Um, it kind of took me by surprise, actually. But uh, yeah, that's exactly what I am. And um, what more do you want to know? Well, okay, so... In this time, especially during COVID, you know, the, the, the facts are showing that more people are reaching for the bottle, more people are reaching for, for drugs, anything to, to 
try and alleviate the boredom, the isolation, the loneliness. So it does a lot to hear the story of someone who not only came to the realization of being an addict, but really went above and beyond to deal with it. So let's start with your story. Okay. So how long do I have, by the way? You can have as long as you want, Millie. Okay. So my name is Millie. I'm an alcoholic. That's how I usually begin my story. And um, I, I mean, I started drinking at the age of about 14. Um, I was at school and then I went on to university and I was always a heavy drinker. I think from the moment I tasted alcohol and I felt the effects, I was drawn to it because I loved the effects. And um, at school and university, it wasn't necessarily that obvious because I think, you know, I'm, I'm British. There's a big drinking culture here. It was quite common to get very drunk um, very often. And it wasn't until I graduated and then went to South America a year and a half later that my drinking or my negative relationship with alcohol, should we say, became quite apparent. I would drink to blackout, not intentionally, but most of the times I drank, it would lead me to forget everything that had happened. I would cause a lot of hurt, a lot of pain. I would wake up feeling guilty and full of shame and tell myself I'll never do that again. But of course, the cycle continues and um, I did it, did it again and again and again. And um, while I was living in South America, I had an Argentinian boyfriend who said to me, you know, your drinking is just not normal. Um, I really think you need to stop or need to get help. And I just thought, who the heck do you think you are? You know, I'm fine. And this is just how we Brits drink. And, you know, this is just part of our culture. And he tried to tell me that he knew plenty of other English people that didn't drink the way I did. But I wasn't ready to hear it. And I'm a firm believer that we can only change our behavior when we're ready. Um, and nobody else can bring us out of our denial other than ourselves. So I was in Argentina for about a year and a half. Um, I eventually decided to come home. And um, four months later, the boyfriend I had at the time came back to England and it should have been wonderful. You know, we were living together. Um, we were in many ways very happy, but I just couldn't, I couldn't stop drinking. And I'm not your conventional alcoholic. Um, I'm young. I, you know, have always had uh, friends and money and work and been in relationships, but something clearly wasn't right. Um, and you know, I, I had to eventually come to the realization that my drinking was out of control. I tried to create rules for myself. I told myself I'll only drink at weekends or I won't drink spirits. I'll just drink beer and wine. I won't mix drink and drugs, for example. And every single time this happened, I would inevitably break my own rules. So it was May 2015. I got a call from a friend saying I'm having um a birthday celebration this weekend I'm having a barbecue and I had created this rule for myself which was I'm only going to drink in non-party environments whatever that means <laughs> so <laughs> I told myself because she didn't use the word party 
I would allow myself a few drinks that day, which I did. A few being about 24. I bought a crate of 24 beers. I took it to her garden. I was knocking them back one after the other, completely in denial that this was unusual behavior, you know. And uh, then that night, my, my boyfriend and I were planning to go to an actual party, which I couldn't deny was a party. So I thought to myself, well, I'd better have as many here as I can before we leave. And then I thought to myself, well, when it was time to go, I won't be allowed to drink there, allowed according to my own rules that I set for myself. But, you know, uh, I'll, I'll need a beer for the train ride there. In fact, it's quite a long train ride, so I'd probably better take two. Mm, but then there's going to be a walk from the train station to the club, so I really ought to take another. And then what if there's a long queue to get into the club? I'm going to need at least four beers. So I took four beers with me. I think I probably had them all on the train. By the time I got into this club, I was completely and utterly, you know, whatever you want to, whatever expressions, there are so Wasted. many expressions. There are so many expressions for the word drunk. Anyway, I was very drunk. Got into the club and um, coincidentally, I bumped into a friend of mine. And the first thing he said was, oh, Millie, you know, I haven't seen you in ages. Let me buy you a drink. So he ran away. He came back. He put a pint of beer in my hands. And although my memory of this night is very hazy, I do just remember staring down at this beer and thinking, I really want this. I can't have it. But I couldn't put it down. And in the end, I justified it to myself by saying, well, I didn't ask for this beer. And I mean, I didn't pay for it. So technically, I'm allowing it. Technically, I'm allowed to have it. And I downed the beer in one and I don't remember anything else that happened that night. And that was my last drink. And that was May the 15th, uh, 2015. Anyway, um, it sounds pretty insane, I know. But this is the thing. At the time, I just didn't realize how insane my thinking was. And these justifications that I was making, you know, allowing myself to have that beer because I hadn't paid for it and hadn't requested it. Anyway, needless to say, the next morning I woke up and those familiar feelings of guilt and shame and remorse came back and hit me. I didn't remember anything that had happened, but I knew it wasn't good. I always knew it wasn't good. Every time I woke up after a heavy night, before I even knew what I'd done, I would get feelings of dread and anxiety and just, oh, my heart would start racing. And when I talk about it, I can still feel it. Oh, I don't, don't miss those days. Um, yeah, so eventually I had to ask somebody what I'd done and nobody was willing to tell me because they were embarrassed, I guess. My boyfriend wouldn't talk to me. He wouldn't look me in the eye. He sent me home. Um, I went home and I spent the whole day in bed just feeling awful, hating myself, really hating myself. Anyway, later that day, um, he eventually came home. He spent the day on his own and I had to beg and plead him to tell me what I had done. I knew I wouldn't like it, but I had to know. And what he said to me was, um, was that I'd got quite violent and aggressive in the club, which again is, you know, not, you wouldn't expect someone that looks like me to get violent and aggressive. But I was like that when I was drinking, I was a real Jekyll and Hyde. So um, I, started, I started a fight with him. I got us both kicked out. And then whilst we were outside the club, 
Um, I continued fighting with him. And at one point I ran back into the club. I managed to worm my way past the bouncer and get back in. And, oh, I just cringe when I remember this part. Well, I don't remember it, but I got told it. I cringe when I remember being told this part. Um, I pulled some random man towards me and I started kissing him. And then I pushed him away. And then I pulled another man towards me and I started kissing him. And then I pushed him away. And at some point, my boyfriend managed to convince the bouncer to bring me back outside. And when I heard this, you know, I, I didn't want to believe it, of course. I thought there's no way that I would do that. I am not loyal. Uh, sorry, I'm not disloyal. I'm not aggressive. I'm not violent. You know, that's not me. And he looked me dead in the eye and he just said, you are all of those things when you drink. And um, as I say, I haven't had a drink since. And that was my rock bottom. It was perhaps not even the worst thing I did when I was drunk, but it was the thing, it was definitely the most hurtful. It was the thing that caused the most hurt and pain to somebody that I loved. And I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with that. I also knew because I had tried every rule in the book that I had lost control of my drinking and would have to seek help. And so I chose to go to a 12-step fellowship um, my mom is also a member of this 12-step fellowship, which helps because I knew about its existence. I knew it was the right place for me. I still couldn't quite come to terms with the fact that I was an alcoholic because, as you say, there is such a stigma attached to it. But I walked into that room, my first meeting, and um, it was full of old men, actually. <laughs> I was the youngest person by about 30 or 40 years. It was full of old men and... Um, but the share, the person doing the main share was a woman. And she was only a bit older than me. She had a very similar story. She was a binge drinker. She didn't drink every day. She didn't drink in the mornings. She didn't consciously drink on her feelings. Um, she was a party girl. And I found a lot of similarities. And I thought to myself, if this woman's calling herself an alcoholic, then maybe that's what I am, you know? And, um, at the end of that meeting, people were coming up to me and just showing me so much love and support and care. And I thought these people don't know me and yet they really seem to care about me. And, you know, what I was saying about the importance of connection and community earlier, the reason it's so important is because that's what keeps people coming back to these meetings. It's what essentially keeps people sober or one of the things that keeps people sober, I believe. And so I kept going back to meetings I continued to say, my name's Millie and I'm an alcoholic. And I started to believe that was the case. Um, to begin with, it was all about just stopping drinking. But as time went by, I started to realize that in order to get to the root of my problems, I would have to take a really good look at myself and do a lot of work on myself and work the, the steps in this instance. And that was actually the harder part for me. Putting down the drink was one thing because I'd really had enough. I was just so sick of it. I would look at it and instantly feel disgust. You know, it had got to that stage. The harder part was working on myself and taking, you know, a look at myself in the mirror because we have to confront a lot of things that we don't like about ourselves. Anyway, I've been doing that now 
since 2015, so coming up to six years. Um, I haven't been clean all that time. I stopped drinking and for a year and a half, I'm being completely honest here, um, I continued taking drugs because I thought, well, alcohol is my problem. I'm fine with drugs. Anyway, a year and a half later, I soon had my own sort of separate rock bottom with drugs and came to the realization that it's all the same. It doesn't matter what the substance is, the thought processes are all the same. The behaviors around these different substances are the same. May, may I inquire as to, to what type of drugs? Mm, marijuana, mm -hmm. mostly, but also uh, LSD, magic mushrooms, ketamine, MDMA, pills. <laughs> and I'm calling myself sober because I don't drink. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, it's insane, right? So, yeah, it's still, it's still addiction. It's so still there's, there's so much to unpack there. And I definitely want to get into the good work you've done since that time, because you didn't stop at just helping yourself. You continued on to help many, many others. But I want to go back to a few things you talked about. And I think one thing that really struck me was you don't appear to be your stereotypical alcoholic or stereotypical addict. I know. Because you're right, we we sort of have, well, that's an old guy, or that's an old man, or that's some that's some some high strung business person, something like that. They come in all shapes and sizes and genders, and and you've most likely experienced the the the, the varied addicts out there. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, this is actually the reason that I wrote that article, and I'm not sure if you read the article, but it was. Um, an article that I wanted to write specifically for women of my age. So I sent it into two, well, I sent it into one um, women's magazine, but then I ended up writing another article for another women's magazine. And both these articles talk about my journey and my experiences. And the reason I did it was because I wanted to see, or I wanted to help, sorry, young women like myself see that they might have a problem. And um, before you get too much further, uh, the articles, uh, tell me uh, where people can find them. Okay, so one of them I wrote for Cosmopolitan UK, mm -hmm. and it's online. And I think it's called How I Became or How I Found Out That I Was an Alcoholic okay. at the Age of 26. I can share the link with you later if you like. Yes, and I definitely will get that link out there. In fact, at the end of this interview, I will uh, have the link in my, my voice over at the end. So stay tuned, folks. Okay, I, I apologize. So you wrote these, you wrote these articles and continue. Yeah, because I wanted young women like myself who felt that their drinking was out of control to know they had somewhere to go. Um, and, you know, if it hadn't been for my mother, the fact that my mother is also in this fellowship, I think I would have had or felt that I had nowhere to go. And I can see that my drinking probably would have continued for quite a few years. You know, I'm lucky. I got in there quite early. I'm 32 now, I was 26 at the time, you know, I saved myself a lot of carnage. But it's interesting because I've been to these meetings now all over the world, Germany, England, France, Italy, um, Borneo, the Philippines, um, I think even somewhere in the Middle East. Anyway, I've, I've done a lot of traveling. I love to travel, I love to explore the world. And I've been to meetings all over the world and I see people from all walks of life, all nationalities, all ages, people with money, people with no money. You know, um, I, I see people from all walks of life. And that is the, 
I don't want to say beauty, but that is the thing about addiction. It's not biased towards any one particular kind of person. It targets everybody. It can happen to anybody. And it doesn't matter how seemingly perfect your upbringing has been either. Like I had a pretty good upbringing. You know, I've got a very loving uh, family. Um, as I say, my mother's also an addict, but you know, we, we had a wonderful time. Like I had a wonderful time as a child. I had a wonderful time as a teenager. I don't understand really why I became an alcoholic, but it doesn't matter. The point is I am one and it's focusing on the solution and not the reason. I'm going to pause here, not to worry though. I will continue the conversation with Millie in the next episode, which will be released later on this week. For links to Millie's articles or to send her a message, go to thehappymolecule.com slash links. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and also check out The Happy Molecule Extra at thehappymolecule.com. There you'll find a link to a video version of this episode. Be able to join the conversation about mental health, learn about our Facebook Live show, and get a preview of upcoming episodes. You can email us at thehappymolecule at gmail.com. I'm Erin Davis, wishing you good mental health.